right, if you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to uh, Luke chapter 9. It's going to be on page 562 or 563 um, in the Bible that's around you. And if you don't have um, a Bible with you, definitely grab one of those and, and open up so that you can follow along with us. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you. Uh, it's our gift uh, to you. Uh, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to be having a um, uh, parent-child dedication next week. And one of the things we normally do when we have those is we give uh, a Bible away, a storybook Bible. Um, and lately we've been giving this one away, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I'm going to begin this morning by reading a little bit of this to you. I thought about getting a chair and having everybody come down front, but we'll just, let me read it like this to you for just a second. It's going to set, set up pretty well for something for us. But I will try to show pictures. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere. Because God created everything in His world to reflect Him like a mirror. To show us what He's like. To help us know Him. To make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail. The way red poppies grow wild. The way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too. And wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules. Telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright evil. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers His name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. And it goes into, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what I want to kind of pick up on out of that is the idea there that sometimes we have the, that the Bible is a collection of heroes that we are to try to emulate. And sometimes the, the way that we've heard uh, the feeding of the 5,000 that we're talking about today 
is, you know, oh, you need to be generous like the little boy. He gave his five loaves. He gave his two fish. So let's all be generous and, and you'll just see what God can do in your life. Now, I'm all for generosity. Okay, that's a major theme in the Bible. We should be generous to the church. We should be generous to one another. We should be generous to those outside of the church. All for that. But the story of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about generosity. What it is about is continuing to answer the question that Luke has, been, has spent nine chapters at this point trying to answer. And that question is, who is Jesus? Who is it? And more than any miracle besides the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 helps us answer this. And so let me try to show you that this morning. Uh, like I said, we're going to be in chapter 9. We're actually going to go back to verse 1. Christy started in verse 10. We're going to go back to verse 1. We'll make our, all, our, our, our way all the way through verse 22. So if you've got a Bible around you, um, grab it. And uh, the big numbers on the page is the chapter, the little numbers and the sentences. Those are the verses. So when I say chapter or verse, that's what I'm talking about. But let's go chapter 9, verse 1. Okay? Chapter 9, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And so the first thing I want us to talk about this morning is we're seeking to just once again answer that question, who is Jesus, the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is powerful. Okay, Jesus is powerful. It says in verse 1, and He called the twelve together and He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so He's sending them out on a short-term mission trip and He gives them power. And just a general observation here. If you have the power to give someone power over all demons and to cure diseases, you're pretty powerful. Okay, you are pretty like you, you have Jesus is legitimately powerful here. He's got full reign of power. He is all powerful. This is something that we've looked at previously. We looked at it last week, in fact. We were in chapter eight. We were talking about how uh, it's just kind of this litany of of miracles where Jesus is just showing that He's Lord over all things. And so we talked about how He's uh, Lord over disease. We talked about how He's Lord over death. We talked about how He's Lord over creation. And he's Lord over even the demonic. That this is just who He is. He, he creates eyes for people who can't see. He creates hands for people who have a withered hand. He resurrects people from the dead. He, he heals people without even being near them. He he calms a storm with a word. He just speaks. The, the winds and the waves obey His voice. And the reason they obey His voice, the reason they hearken to Him when He speaks, is they've heard the voice before. 
It's the voice that created them. It's the voice that called them into being out of nothing. There was nothing. He spoke and there was. That's called ex nihilo. It's the, it's the Latin. Out of nothing. Out of nothing. There was nothing. God speaks and the world fills with whatever He speaks into existence. This is who Jesus is. He is powerful. He is powerful. That, that's part of who Jesus is. Is He's powerful. But another part of who Jesus is, and this will be number two in your notes, Jesus is perplexing. He's perplexing. Look at verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And so Herod here, Herod Antipas, this is the son of Herod the Great, the one who slaughtered all the babies in Bethlehem trying to take Jesus out when he was born. Herod's saying, who is this guy? I've heard a bunch. Who is this? I want to know who this is. And he even sought to see him. He was curious. He's He's perplexed, it says. Herod's perplexed about Jesus. He was perplexing to people then. He's perplexing to people today. And by perplexing, I'm not meaning like complex, you know, equations. Like when I, when I went to Georgia Tech, yeah, I nerded out and I enjoyed trying to figure out, you know, complex mathematical equations or stuff in physics where it takes two or you know, two or three or four pages to do one problem to try to get the answer. I enjoyed that because I saw it as a competition. Me versus the question. And I want to beat the question. I want to beat the professor. I want to get the right answer. So it was a competitive deal that, that would get sparked in me. But that, that's not the perplexing, like, you know, complex thinking here that, that, that the word's speaking to. This is more perplexing in the sense of, like, relationally. Like perplexing in the sense of, we sing it sometimes, why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. That's perplexing. His grace, like why should I be forgiven? That's perplexing. That, that God's grace and His forgiveness and His acceptance of me isn't ultimately based on me. It's not ultimately based on what I've done or what I do, but it's based on what Jesus did. That's perplexing. His sinless life was substituted for my sinful life. That His undeserved death for sin was substituted for my deserved death for sin. That His resurrection serves as a proof of the reality of all of this as well as a foretaste of my future resurrection these things perplex me like with my wife she perplexes me and i mean that in the best most tender most loving most respectful way i can and that perplexing drives me crazy in all the best senses of the word because i want to know her i want to know her more I want to. I want to understand her. I want to. I want to. I want to. You know, know her more and closer. And, and and that's what we're talking about here. 
That's what I mean here by perplexing. Jesus is perplexing. We want to know Him. And He's perplexing to, to all people who've heard of Him. Some casual onlookers. I mean, Herod here. And he hears this story and he's like, who is this guy? He, he perplexes me. He heals. The Pharisees hate Him. The crowds love Him. Who, who is He? Who is He? And friend, if you're not a Christian... There's no better place for you to be today and there's no better question for you to ask today or any day. To ask that question. Who is Jesus? Who is it? I encourage you, be perplexed by Him. Be bothered by Him. And don't be lazy in your curiosity, in your perplexity, but, but mind it out. In your curiosity, alright, just mere curiosity helps no one. Herod was was curious and he didn't do anything about it. Mine it out. Seek. Seek to under who is he? And I'm not asking you to believe every word just because I say it, but also don't believe every word that someone else says. Mine it out. Seek. Now put some resources in your bulletins for you. Grab some of those. Read. Ask questions. If you're a believer, also be perplexed. Don't ever grow comfortable. Like a diamond that's got a gazillion different facets that you can never completely see them. That's Jesus. He's fascinatingly complex. He's simple enough for a child who's six or seven to understand the gospel. But he's deep enough. I mean, just as, as the infinite. God of eternity. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Someone we sing, behold our God seated on the throne. This, his holiness and His righteousness and His sovereignty and His goodness and His mercy and His grace and His love and His kindness and His justice. All of these things, be perplexed. You can't contain all that. Doesn't matter what theological system you try to trap Him in, He can't fit in a box. He's too big. He's too good. He's too glorious. He's perplexing in all the best senses of the word. So let's keep going on this. Who, who is Jesus? He's all-powerful. He's perplexing. And now we're going to turn our attention to the actual feeding of the 5,000. <clears> we're going to see Jesus' power on display again. You almost thought about saying Jesus is powerful. Jesus is perplexing. Number three, Jesus is powerful, part two. But we'll go with Jesus is powerfully uh, he's a powerful provider. That'll be number three. He's a powerful provider. So let's look at verse 10 once again. On their return. So they've been out on this short-term mission trip. They've been given power. Now they're coming back. All right, He gave them temporary power for this short-term mission trip. Now they've come back. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and he spoke to uh, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. 
There were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. And so many of us have heard this story so many times that it is like not moving anymore. It doesn't stand out anymore. Oh, the feeding of the 5,000, great. I read that in Sunday school when a thousand times. Some of us, maybe this is the first time you've heard it. But regardless, I want you to try to put yourself in that situation. Try to, try to put yourself, imagine yourself in that situation. There's 5,000 men there. All right? Matthew chapter 14, 21 says there's 5,000 men besides women and children. And so, if you're just doing some simple math, if you've got 5,000 men, you have at least probably 5,000 women. And if you go with a 2.5 average of kids, theirs was probably greater because they had no birth control. But still, we get at twenty to 25,000 people easy, conservatively. So just think Bridgestone Arena, packed out, and another maybe 5,000 people standing around. That's the type of crowd that is there hearing Jesus. It's not this. It's twenty to 25,000 people. Twenty to 25,000 people. And so the disciples are like, hey, it's getting late in the day. Why don't you send them away so they can go get some food? And Jesus said, no, why don't you feed them? Now, obviously, I mean, why does Jesus say that? He knows that they, that they can't do that. He knows they can't do that. And that's exactly why he told them to do it. He knows it, and it's exactly why he told them to do it. And I love it because he's totally blowing up that lie that's trotted out there of God won't give you more than you can handle. He just did. He does it all the time. That's not in the Bible. I and mean, when you find it, you can find the one that also says God helps those who help themselves. That one's not in there either. So they couldn't handle it. There's no way they could. And that's the point. Jesus wants them to see, you can't. But I can. I can. And so Jesus has set this whole thing up. Right? He's, he's, he's teaching people who He is. And He set this whole thing up where there's the need of the people and there's the inability of the disciples to meet it. And that becomes an opportunity for Him to display His power. Everybody knows there's no way this can be done. There's 25,000 people and there's one boy who's got you know, a lunch with him of some sardines and some biscuits. And so he's laid it all out like this. And friends, God does the same thing in our lives today, like right now. Mark Dever sums it up like this. He says, our weaknesses become the platforms his strength. Our weaknesses become the platforms for His strength. And so if you're, if you're facing some challenge where you feel hopeless, where you've got a need and you don't know how you're going to meet it, listen, I don't know how it's all going to shake out. I don't know how it's all going to 
come together. I don't know if it's going to go bad for you or if it's going to go good for you, but either way, I can tell you this. Trust Christ in it. He's all-powerful. He's all-good. He's completely sovereign. And He knows what He's doing in this broken world. So trust Him. Just trust Him. I mean, has He not provided for you, if you're a believer in Jesus, has He not provided for you in the past? And it's not like all of a sudden he's just going to stop. It's not like all of a sudden he's going to change. It's not like all of a sudden he's going to be like, sorry, son, you hit your grace quota. I'm all out. You've, you've maxed out your uh, provision account. I'm done. No. He proves his faithfulness like that old hymn says, or and or. So don't live. Don't live as if suddenly none of that happened. Don't live as if suddenly you're not sure if He's going to keep being what He's always been to you. He's proved it. Or and or. Don't, don't forget that. But for some of us, it's not so much a forgetting, it's just we have a hard time believing that God could actually be for us. And we wouldn't admit that in Sunday school. We wouldn't admit that in community groups. But it's in the deep recesses of our mind. We've seen dark days. We've developed this idea, this false view of God that's, that He's against you. That, that He's out to get you and He's just watching you, almost hoping that you slip up so He can jump on you and, and get you. Some of us have that false view of God in our mind. You know where that idea comes from. It comes from the accuser. It comes from Satan. It doesn't come from the Bible. As one guy put it, the evidence that God loves you and loves you now, not some future version of you where you're all perfected, but loves you right now, the evidence of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. You, you haven't surprised God. Okay, you, Your behavior, the things that you've been a part of, the things that, that, that maybe you're in right now, secretly, the things that you've done, God isn't in heaven going, didn't see that one coming. Wish I'd known that 2,000 years ago. Wouldn't have sent Jesus to the cross for Him. No! Here is the thing that keeps me floored at the Gospel. And I'll just talk personally. He knew my mess. And He still went. He knew your sin. And He still went. That's the depth of His love. That's the depth of His grace. That's the depth of His mercy. This is, and it's the evidence that He's for you and not against you. I mean, did God really need to send His Son to die just so He could destroy you? He already had destroying you down. He sent Jesus so that He might rescue you. So that He might save you. That's the evidence that He's for you. Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross if He wasn't for you. He'd just gone on and destroyed you. So trust Him. He is for you. This is evidence. The cross stands as a testimony of that evidence. Even in the darkest of times. Trust Him. His power is made perfect in our weakness. 
So they've got the five biscuits, they've got the two sardines, and they bring them to Jesus. <clears throat> and even if Jesus just took and, you know, peeled off like one scale per fish and gave that out, maybe you could feed a hundred people. Okay? A little piece of bread, little crumbs, hand that. Maybe you could fill, you know, maybe you could feed a hundred people. It's really just like eating a piece of grass. It, it doesn't satisfy them. They're not like it says it's going to be here. So how, how does this happen? Verse 15. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. The tense of the, of the Greek verb broke there is that Jesus kept on breaking. So they bring this, and he's breaking it up, and he just keeps on breaking. He just keeps on breaking. Like it never, it never, it never goes away. He just keeps on breaking. It just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming, and it just keeps coming. From where? Ex nihilo. Out of nothing. This is a creation account. He's doing what he did in the very beginning. He's creating matter out of nothing. Just like he did in the beginning. I quoted this last week, I'll quote it again, or I'll read it this week. Colossians 1.16, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's being shown here is that Jesus is God. He can create out of nothing. He can take emptiness and He can fill it. He can take darkness and He can make it light. He's an all-powerful provider. And through faith, this one that the angels marvel at and that the demons tremble before is your friend. It's on your side. But even beyond that, I want you to notice <clears throat> what's happening here. And if you've got a background in church, I want you to think back to the Old Testament for a moment. What's happening here is Jesus is supernaturally providing food for Israel in the wilderness. You see what's happening here. Jesus What's happening? He's acting in the position of Yahweh in the Old Testament. When, when the Israelites are traveling in the desert and they don't have any food, God gives them manna supernaturally in the wilderness. Gives the nation of Israel manna supernaturally in the wilderness. Jesus, right here, is giving 25,000 Israelites who are in the wilderness supernatural food. He, he's He's acting in the position of Yahweh. And no one missed it. No one missed it in this day. It absolutely stood out. That's why in John's account of what's going on here, they grab him and they try to make him king on the spot. And he, he slips away from it. No one misses what's happening here. That's why, other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Jesus was acting in the position of Yahweh in the Old Testament. In this moment, what happens here reverberates in the minds and the hearts of the disciples 
So that when Jesus asks them sometime later, verse 20, who do you say that I am? Peter, as the spokesman, speaks up and says, the Christ of God. That's the full answer to our question this morning. Who is Jesus? Yeah, he's powerful. Absolutely. Yes, he's perplexing. Yes, he provides. But who he is, he is the Christ of God. Look at verse 18 with me. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, all right, and they answered just like Herod did. John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered them. The Christ of God. This is who Jesus is. He is the Christ of God. See, Chad and I were talking about this this week. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Okay. He does not go to the DMV and they call out Christ, Jesus, right? Doesn't happen. That's not, it's not his last name. Christ is a title, okay? It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you hear Messiah, when you hear Christ, same thing, same thing. It's two different ways of saying it. It's Messiah, all right? So if he's the Messiah of God, he's the Christ of God, he's If he's the Messiah of God, well, what does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed one. It means anointed one. The one who had been chosen by God before the foundations of the earth and set aside for this special purpose and of God, referring to his origin. So the Christ of God, Messiah of God, declares that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God The Savior that God had always promised to send. Philip Ryken puts it, he says, Many prophets, priests, and kings were anointed to lead Israel. But along the way, there were hints that one day God would send the greatest prophet, the highest priest, the mightiest king of all. The people of God knew these ancient promises. They knew that one day a deliverer would crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. They knew that God would raise up a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.18. They knew that a mighty king would come from the royal city of David. That's Bethlehem, all right? Micah 5.2. They knew that his kingdom would endure, that he would rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom forever. We read that, Isaiah 9, at Christmas. So the people of God were waiting for the anointed one. They were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the Christ. Now he's on the scene and the disciples finally get it. You're the Christ of God. You've healed. You're Lord over creation. You're Lord over all things. You can create ex nihilo. You stand in the position of God just like in the wilderness and you give food. You're the Christ of God. They begin to see it. It's you, Jesus. But they don't yet get all the ramifications of what that means. Like they thought in their minds, okay, everything in the Old Testament, all these things, like it's about to go down. It's about to happen right now. The the fulfillments of the visible kingdom are about to happen right now. 
I mean, when, when they hear Peter say, and it hits in their mind, the Christ of God, what, what they, and, and, and Jesus is like, mm-hmm. What they hear Jesus basically saying is that I'm going to overthrow Rome. I'm going to establish the throne. I'm going to rule. The time of Israel is here. So they are pumped. They're jacked. They're ready for this. And then before they can go any further along with that, Jesus is like, but first I'm going to die. Look at verse 21. And He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Saying, the Son of Man his favorite title for himself, harkening back to Daniel chapter 7, I think. Must, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And so all the, uh, you know, all the, that was in there, <clears throat> all the air that was in their geopolitical uh, Israeli patriotism just got popped because Jesus just said, "I'm going to die." And you're like, "Wait, wait, that's not that's not that's not the way it works, Jesus. That's not the way this is supposed to go down." Like, if you're ever wondering why the why the why the disciples don't remember him over and over and over saying, "I'm going to be killed," and on the third day I'm going to rise. I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise, is because they they cannot conceive of the Messiah. Of it happening that way. They've got, a, they've got a different view. They've got a different understanding of the Messiah based on their... Let's be particular here. Almost their desired Jesus. They have a Jesus. They, they have a Messiah they desire. Not the, biblical desi- not the biblical Jesus that actually is. Not the biblical Messiah that actually is but one that they desire. And oh, how many of us have a Messiah that we would prefer, but doesn't match the one that's revealed to us. And so they don't get this. They don't understand. You can't die. That's not how this works. That, that was their thought process. And as it relates to the second advent of Jesus, all right, the second coming. We, you've heard of the Advent calendar at Christmas. You know, that's, you know, we have that when we have the Advent wreath. That's, that means arrival. That means coming. That's the first time he came. Christmas, we celebrate that. The second Advent is when he comes again. All right, as it relates to the second Advent of Christ, this idea of all, you know, that 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 he's going to rule, that he's going to be on the throne. They are completely right as it relates to the second Advent. And when Jesus comes again, he is coming as a warrior. He is coming as a king. He is coming as a judge. He is coming as a ruler on a throne. He will be coming as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That day's coming. Right? Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and He will come with a sword in His hand and the blood of His foes on His robe. That day's coming. But in His first advent, He did not come to go to Jerusalem wielding the spear and bringing judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear our judgment in our place for our sins to make a way for us to be forgiven, for us, for our sin to be atoned for, for us to be rescued, as we read, the hero coming to rescue. 
And so Jesus doesn't want them talking about, you know, He says He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one about this at this time. Why, why did He do that? I'm going to quote the 5th century uh, theologian Cyril of Alexandria. He says, There were things yet unfulfilled which must also be included in their preaching about Him. Like if, he just, if they just went out and started talking right now, there's things that haven't happened yet that they need to be able to tell about. They must also proclaim the cross, the passion, and the death in the flesh. They must preach the resurrection of the dead, that great and truly glorious sign by which testimony is borne Him that the Emmanuel is truly God, and by nature the Son of God, the Father. He utterly abolished death and wiped out destruction. He robbed hell and overthrew the tyranny of the enemy. He took away the sin of the world, opened the gates above to dwellers upon earth and united earth to heaven. The things proved Him to be, as I said, in truth, God. He commanded them, therefore, to guard the mystery by a seasonable silence until the whole plan should arrive at a suitable conclusion. But the heart of all of this, the heart of all of this is verse 20. Then He said to them, But who do you say that I am? That is the most critical question that every single person on the planet who is alive today or has been alive or will ever be alive before Jesus returns. This is the most important question of your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not that you can redefine Him, but do you accept what He has said about Himself? Or do you reject it? And heaven or hell hangs in the balance. It's not just an issue that affects your beliefs. It's not just an issue that affects your lifestyle. It affects your eternal destiny. And everybody is accountable to God for this question. It's not enough to just admire Jesus. It's not enough to just be curious and be perplexed by Him like Herod was. It's not enough to think He was, oh, He was a prophet, like Herod was saying, and like some of the crowds thought, oh, He's a prophet of old. Even, even um, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. And many secular historians will admit the wisdom of His teaching. Yeah, you live that way and Consider others first. You know, love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are good things to live by. But how can you claim to respect Jesus' greatness as a religious leader, as a religious teacher, yet reject or dismiss His most fundamental claim? Claims that he is the Son of God. Like you can't have it both ways. Either he's who he said he was, or he's just an old school David Koresh crazy person who claims to be God and starts a cult. And if that's the case, then obviously he's not someone we should respect and, and, and value his teaching. You can't have it both ways. Ultimately, you've got to pick. And so the question comes out, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you 
I cannot answer this for you. Mom cannot answer this for you. Dad cannot answer this for you. Your brother cannot answer this for you. Who do you, who do you say Jesus is? And friends who aren't believers, let me encourage you, trust Christ. He gave His life for you. He is the Christ. Prophecies, hundreds, multi, the, the probability, if you worked out one of those mathematical equations, the probability to do a combination or a permutation, I don't know which it would be, work out the probability of that, and it's going to be minuscule that He would fulfill all of these things. Trust Him. This is the one question you cannot get wrong. You can, but you don't want to. Eternal, heaven or hell hangs in the balance. But my friends who are already believers, I want you to be encouraged. Because you've been forgiven. You've been made free. You've been adopted. You're all powerful and, and perplexing and powerfully providing Christ, like He fed the Israelites in the wilderness, and then here He, 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 he did that with manna, and then here He feeds the 25,000 again in the wilderness, and then the Last Supper comes and He breaks bread and, and pours wine uh, as, a, as a, you know, do this in remembrance of Me. All these meals culminating ultimately someday in another meal we're going to eat with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb where He will be sitting on the throne and we will know beyond a shadow of the doubt that He is our God and we are His people and we will be with Him forever and ever. And all things that have gone wrong will be made right. That's coming because that's who He is. The Christ of God. Believe. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for who You are, Your person. And we thank You for what You've done in our doing, Your work. We thank You that You've revealed Yourself to us. You did not have to. There's nothing that forces You to do that. But in Your grace, You chose to. We thank You. We thank You that You've made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. To be made right with You. There's not hoops to jump through. There's not steps to take. You've done it all. We just receive it. We just say yes. And so Father, for those in here who have not said yes to You yet, would You give them the faith to believe? The supernatural act, and we, we ask you, would you, would you give them the faith to believe? And then, Father, for those of us who, who are facing uncertain situations this week, things that we don't understand, how can this work out? How is this going to go down? Lord, would you help us? Would you, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to remember your faithfulness in times past and that you don't change? Would you help us to remember the cross that stands as an eternal reminder that you are for us. You don't leave us and you don't forsake us.
would you help us to never grow comfortable, to never grow weary of continuing to seek and continuing to know who you are in your person and in your work. We ask all of this in Jesus' name with great, great thanksgiving and hope. Christ of God has come and is coming again. Praise your name. Amen.